Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, welcome to the Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, as the end of the year approaches, it's time for a look back on what has gone on over the last 12 months and maybe a little peek into the future. It's been an interesting year in politics and with the number of elections due in 2024, the year ahead promises to be even more interesting. Joining me to look back and look forward is Irish Examiner political editor Elaine Lachlan and deputy political editor Paul Hosford. How are we doing, folks? Good, Mick. Right, Elaine, could we start? Biggest story of the year? Well, I think that's fairly uncontested. Uh, it has to be RT, Mick. Um, when you look back, it dominated uh, for many months and, and is still rumbling on in the news headlines. And I think there'll be more in the new new year around the future of RT. And I think both the Media Committee and the Public Accounts Committee still have remaining questions that they want answered around this controversy, which started off, as you know, around uh, secret payments that were made to Ryan Tuberty. And then we got into the realm of barter accounts, flip-flops, trips to World Cups. Um, and it really continued to be both en- entertaining, but also a very serious issue. Um, and if you think back, actually, on the day that, that this controversy erupted, we were in the middle of, a, of another controversy, which then was completely overshadowed. It was the day that Micheál Martin was in Cork for the second of those forums around security and neutrality. Um, and that forum itself in UCC had been uh, the subject of a protest that morning Um by by protesters, as I said, who had come in and uh, made quite quite a stir at the opening session, and of course, the days before that, the president himself had made some controversial comments around the chair of that forum, which he had to apologise for, and also the way in which he thought the forum was being conducted. But of course, that's only a side note now, because. Uh, later on that day, details of the Ryan Tuberty payments and all that followed emerged. And we've had, as I said, months and months of column inches taken up by RT and all that's gone on with the state broadcaster. Paul, I suppose there was two elements to it. One was the initial one, Ryan Tuberty, and the figure initially was, I think, over the period of five, six years, 345,000 more he was paid than uh, had been publicly declared. And the second element, of course, was, if I could put it this way, the flip-flops, and we're talking here about excessive spending, or what was perceived in the corporate sense to be excessive spending, even though some in the corporate world would disagree with that. But in the context of RT being so strapped, I think that was the issue. Which element, I mean, there's two, those two elements were there, Paul. Would it have been as big a deal if somebody with the kind of celebrity wattage of Ryan Tuberty wasn't involved. Yeah, I think what was interesting about this is that it was both a personal thing uh, with, with Ryan Tuberty. People were able to personalise it. They were able to pin it on on one man. He called himself the toy man in his uh, Aroxas committee. So people were able to say, that's the guy who, who 
got overpaid or, or, or got extra payments. But then there was the that whole element of the barter account of a bus from uh, Drumcondra to to Croke Park for a U2 concert uh, for corporate clients. Uh, and what people perceived as a, an RTE that wasn't grounded in uh, the everyday Irish public. Now, the argument was made at, at these committees that this is just how business is done within media circles when you're looking for advertisements that you wine and dine clients. And I suppose it was it was the problem that they had was that the details were so quirky. I, I don't think that people really care if RTE had spent, wouldn't have cared if RTE had spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of euro on big items. But when you hear things like 25,000 euro on flip-flops, that's so tangible and people can make such an obvious connection and the uh, the jokes online fly about things like that uh so i think there was there was those two elements but i don't think it would have been the same thing if the, if not for the quirkier details and if not for who ryan Tubley was undoubtedly the, the the broadcaster's biggest star yeah elaine and i suppose just one other thing to that rt was in trouble financially and has been for some years uh, I think there's general agreement that the licensing, the TV license system is broken. Change was coming anyway, I'd suggest. But does this mean that that change is going to be more drastic and deeper? We've seen already proposals there for voluntary redundancies in that. Yeah, and even from the government side of view, I think it is probably pushing the government into looking at that really thorny issue of the licence fee, uh, how it's collected and essentially who it goes towards, what entities that licence fee do you broaden it out to a media fee, which is given to even the likes of ourselves in the print media? There are other broadcasters out there beyond RT now doing what they would claim is a, a really good public service and even other radio stations. So does it become a media charge, uh, which had been mooted before, but was essentially ignored by the government because it's quite a difficult one to tackle? Um, but I think certainly next year that will have to be examined and I think decisions will, be have, will have to be made around that. Yeah, I would doubt very much if you're going to see any kind of an unpopular decision that could stray into the kind of territory that was there with water charges this side of a general election. So it will be very interesting to see how they attempt to tackle that. Paul, uh, here's what I always like doing. Uh, politician of the year. Who do you, who in your estimation was the politician of the year in the Dáil this year? There's a couple. Uh, there's a couple that actually stand out. People who've, who've been really, really good. I think. I think Holly Cairns captured a, a moment when she became the 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 leader of the Social Democrats, and I think she's been really, really good on some of the social issues. Um, for me, overall, uh, it's it's me, Hall Martin, um, and that's not going to be popular with some people that that, that he would be named uh, politician of the year. But I think as Minister for Foreign Affairs, it, if you go back to January, me, Hall Martin was the first person ever to rotate out of out of the Taoiseach seat, um, that he was, you know, in any realistic view of it, he was demoted. He, he was the Taoiseach and then all of a sudden he wasn't. Um, being the Minister of Foreign Affairs actually has really suited him. Uh, when you go abroad with him, and I've, I've gone abroad with him a couple of times, people really like him. He comes across very calm, very statesmanlike. But it's the last couple of months on on the issue of Gaza where 
Uh, and Elaine can can speak to this uh, a lot better than I can. But his, I, I think Elaine, you you called it his, his kind of his quiet resolve and and his his quiet diplomacy has really really worked. And and look, people will criticise this government for lots of things that it does, particularly on on Gaza, where they feel like it's not going far enough. But I suppose the benefit of real tangible uh, diplomacy can be seen in. Uh, Leo Varadkar went to, to Paris at the beginning of, of November. Uh, he was the only European leader at a, a summit on, on Gaza. He sat with Emmanuel Macron in the, in, in the Elysee Palace uh, and spoke to leaders from Jordan, from Lebanon, from uh, Egypt, from Palestine. And then the following week, uh, Michal Martin was in, was in Israel. And within days, Irish names were on lists uh, being allowed leave Gaza, uh, Emily Hand was was released by Hamas. Uh, so that level of of quiet diplomacy, uh, something that Michal Martin has has kind of exemplified. So on that stage, I think he he's been the the politician of the year. Yeah, I think it's very interesting you say that, and and the the contrast between that and some of the loud hailer stuff even particularly in relation to Gaza, is notable. Quick thing, Paul, though, Holly Cairns, I agree with you, she, you know, she was definitely a breath of fresh air. She came in young uh, at a time when I would certainly contend there, there's a growing disparity in terms of uh, the, the generations, in terms of how wealth is distributed in the country and have a young party leader, positive thing, female again, very positive. Some people suggest, and this may just be down to her inexperience, that she's very accomplished in the kind of set piece thing in the doll, but in the white heat of a, a general election, some people would suggest she may be in a small bit of bother when she's up a kind of more ex- against more experienced hands. I think, look, it's a fair question to ask about any political leader. You know, how will they cope in, in the heat of a, a general election campaign? Holly Cairns is only a politician since 2019 effectively she was elected to the the Cork County Council in 2019 became a TD in in 2020 so there is a question there of experience one of the things that I think the Social Democrats have going for them and and I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago in the the paper is that there is a generation of of voter there who was energised by the repeal campaign who nowadays feel somewhat politically homeless and Holly Cairns is one of those one of those uh, people, she's of that generation. She's the same age. A lot of them are women, um, and they don't find that they have anyone to vote for. And I think that if the Social Democrats really um, focus on what she is good at, um, that set piece thing, that social issues thing, and kind of, I suppose, find their way around to to the rest of the stuff. Uh, look, I think generally speaking, there's a there's a cap on centre-left support in Ireland anyway. You know, I, I think that there is a, a cap there between what Labour can get and what the Social Democrats can get and how well combined that can be. Um, but I do think that, look, you're not going to find out what she's like in the heat of a, a general election until there is one and look, there, <laughs> there could be one pretty soon. Very fair point. And she could turn out to be a trump card in the general election for all we 
No, and I think a point is well made too about a demographic that's out there. As about the whole uh, Labour Sock Dems thing, there's this limited thing and currently a lot of people are suggesting the Sock Dems to be the big winner there. Time shall tell. Elaine, your politician of the year. Well, unfortunately, I think Paula stole my uh, everything I have to say <laughs> because I would also give, and it's I, I have to say, we did not discuss this ahead of coming on this podcast. I would also give my top prize to Michal Martin. I think he, his understanding and grasp of international affairs was was clear to be seen, not just on the Gaza-Israel conflict, which Paul has spoken about, but also, you know, his many international visits and travels and meetings this year. You know, he was at the UN and performed very strongly there. He also was in New York earlier on in the year for events to mark the the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And I think this comes from a place that's really showing now that he has been a foreign affairs minister before. He's also been a leader of the country and um, had those ties and relationships with other leaders formed before going into the Department of Foreign Affairs. But it's certainly an area which it's clear he is comfortable in, he enjoys, and frankly, he's good at And it has to be said, for a man who's been out of the country probably more than he's been in the country, he's done a great job of keeping his party together as well, because this is a party, Fianna Fáil, which uh, shortly after entering this uncomfortable coalition uh, was vying to get Micheál Martin out and tried its best and was tearing itself apart. But now I don't know whether people are are of the opinion that he's there to stay and he's not going and there's no point in pushing him or no point in trying to push him. But certainly um, that clamouring has dissipated and people either seem happy with Micheál Martin as leader or are resigned to the fact that he's going nowhere soon um, and he will possibly a bit like Enda Kenny if he does decide to go he'll be going on his own terms but I think he's definitely been impressive on an international stage. I suppose others you could mention and it's probably a combined award I'd give to most of the members of the Public Accounts Committee and the Media Committee because they got a great outing again going back to the RT fiasco um, I think it probably will be go down in the history as, as some of the most viewed committee um, meetings uh, in the history of the Oireachtas and I, I doubt there will be uh, many more committee meetings that get as much attention um, as those series of RTE meetings and there were a number of politicians on those committees, I'm thinking of the likes of let's say uh, uh, Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster Neve Smith, chair of the committee uh, Brendan Griffin uh, Timmy Dooley, there was a, a lot of people who put in really good Alan Dillon Alan Dillon as well, yeah, um, who really got to the nub of many of the issues that people were asking questions, the general public wanted to know during those lengthy hearings, so I'd give a, a combined award to the, the combined membership of PAC and the media committee yeah, I have to say myself, I thought yeah, th- there was some really good uh, questioning done there. There was also a bit of showboating, but I suppose, look, you're going to have to expect that, particularly when they're aware to, when they're aware of the unaccustomed bright lights shining on them from the the the, the media and what have you, and not the media, but through the media, the, the, the public. Sure, some some of the hearings were shown in pubs, which surely must be a first for a, an Oireachtas committee hearing. Elaine, one thing about Michal Martin, going back to him, um, by my reckoning, I think now, and I could stand corrected, he's been the doll since I think about 1989. 
So we're talking, if I'm right in that, we're talking 35 years in this coming year, 2024. He, 97 until... 2011 or maybe some months beforehand when he his failed uh, a coup against Brian Cohn when he left the cabinet relative senior minister for all that period Fianna Fáil leader since has done his Taoiseach now he's a very fit man even though he's over 60 very you know very clean living very fit man but I still can't get my head around what would keep him in the doll to run for the next election uh, particularly as there seems to be a prospect or the most likely outcome would be a Sinn Féin-led government, probably with uh, Fianna Fáil as a junior partner. And I still can't get my head around that he's, he's going to follow through with it, but increasingly over the last 12 months, I think the, 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 the dial in that has shifted and that more and more people are suggesting that he will stay. That's the one element. The other element is if he doesn't, I suggest Fianna Fáil are in very big trouble. Yeah, and I think it just comes down to a unique drive and enthusiasm, which after three decades, when you see him, when you follow him around, he clearly still has. And he's clearly very dedicated to politics. And I know a lot of people, understandably, when they get to a certain position in politics, whether that's, you know, junior minister, a minister, leader of a party, or possibly even Taoiseach, uh, the personal does come into it and ambition comes into it. But I feel, uh, certainly from having seen Michal Martin in action, um, he he's a man who always puts party first, country first, uh, ahead of the personal. And I think that was clear to be seen, you know, across COVID. But even, you know, going back to that trip um, to Israel in November, he was in Egypt at a time when the first Irish citizens uh, were crossing the border at Rafah to Egypt. He was in the same country as the first Irish citizens who managed to flee the absolute devastation um, that was going on in uh, the Gaza Strip. Um, I think other politicians might have hung on uh, for that photograph, for that opportunity to be part of history uh, with those first citizens, but he didn't. He, that night, uh, got a flight to Israel because he knew that in order to get more citizens out, uh, in order to lobby on behalf of the Hand family, um, that he had to go to Israel, that he had to meet with his Israeli counterparts, that he had to go to Ramallah to meet with uh, members of the Palestinian Authority. And that was a clear sign of him putting uh, the needs of others, the needs of the nation, the needs of Irish citizens ahead of a photo opportunity that essentially would make him look good. And I think that probably does epitomise the man and what he stands for. Yeah, and as I say, were he to decide uh, not to go ahead, uh, it would be a disaster for Fianna Fáil, but uh, you seem to be very much also in the camp that would suggest that you take him completely at his word and he'll be there for the next election. It'll be very interesting following that election, uh, particularly as his, his well-known views on Sinn Féin, which I'd suggest are a lot stronger than others within Fianna Fáil, uh, should that arise. Now, of course, there could also be, and we, we don't talk about it much, but it could also be a scenario whereby Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, with a n other, as we used to call them in, in uh, Gaelic games, 
could end up having a shot at forming a government anyway. But all of that will be very interesting. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Paul there's no getting away from housing, no matter what way you look at it. Have things shifted in 2023 in relation, not to the importance of housing, but whether or not the government are in any sense getting to grips with it in a way they weren't previously? I was with Dara O'Brien outside um, the Custom House on the 26th of January. I went back and looked at it. I, I did an interview for Dara O'Brien that will be running over the new year. Um, and I, I looked at it, went back and looked at it. It was the 26th of January. And Dara O'Brien said to me at a, at a doorstep, Ireland has turned the corner on housing. Um, I tweeted it out and obviously people immediately, you know, looking for a pretty big corner. Um I think the thing about housing, uh, and one of the things that's become abundantly clear about housing, is that the general public's perception of what housing is, is not an overall policy response. It's a tangible thing. Um, can I find somewhere to rent? Can I afford to buy a house? Can my kids afford to buy a house? And on those measures, it's still not turned the way the government wants it to do. They'll argue about commencements being up. They'll argue about... The 600 mortgages being drawn down every 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 week. Um, they, they'll argue about cost rental, about you know new types of tenure, about social housing. Uh, you know, social housing being more ho- social housing being built at any time in the 70s. About the LDA is going to take on this this huge uh, bank of land up in Clon Griffin, and all of these things will help. The problem with with housing is that it was so neglected for the guts of a decade that the public kind of wants a swing for defences here. They want a big initiative. And that's not really how the Department of Housing is set up to do. It's not where, where the mindset is. And it's not what what Darrell O'Brien's mindset is. He wants to solve the housing crisis by, you know, picking up 2,500 homes through tenants tenant in situ, by, you know, the LDA doing another four or 5,000, by the private sector doing 30,000, by, you know, bits and pieces, a, a kind of a piecemeal thing where you, when you add it up, it all gets to where it needs to be. The problem is that the targets that are there in, in Housing for All, uh, the government calls them ambitious, uh, most uh, think tanks, most analyses done so far, I reckon that they're pretty conservative. Uh, they will nudge above them. Uh, they will get beyond uh, housing delivery uh, What in terms of raw numbers being built. Um, but the problem is that you you get to those points. Let's say you deliver. Let's say, and, and the, the government uses this term, the government has delivered. The, the, the private market builds the, the vast majority. A lot of it is with, with state backing through various things like the Housing Finance Agency and, and, and different, uh, the LDA and different schemes. But the problem is that even if you did all of that, 
um, and you did bring you you bring more supply to the market, and and that supply brings down prices. And there's still a, a kind of a, a lot of debate about whether or not actual supply is the silver bullet in terms of bringing down prices. But let's say you do all of that, you still have record numbers of people homeless, uh, and that's the big issue. Uh, homelessness in Ireland has continued to to grow um, this year. Paul, one thing there, when you say homelessness is a big issue, homelessness is absolutely a blight on society, no question in the world, and it's appalling the idea of upwards of 13,000 people, over 3,000 children homeless. Notwithstanding that, though, is that going to be a determinant in the election, or is it the cost for anybody who's under 40 of actually um, not being able to buy a house unless they're on very big money? Yeah, this is something that I I have conversations with uh, with people in both in politics and, and in housing a lot. I'm of the opinion that most people generally aren't ideological about home ownership in terms of how the home is purchased. Um, so they don't necessarily care about the mechanisms used to make the house get built. They care about whether or not they can afford it at the end of the day. Um, and we saw that throughout the, the Celtic Tiger where people weren't really worried about 100% mortgages or, or, you know, they weren't worried about the mechanism. They were worried about overall affordability to them. And I think that that will be, like, yeah, look, I, I do think, I think you're right. I think whether or not people under 40 can afford homes will be a bigger tipping point in an election. But I think that the fact that homelessness has continued to rise and, and continues to rise uh, and that, look, it, it's very simplistic to say that it was the, the ending of the eviction ban, which, you know, forced the numbers up. But the two things hand in hand as a as a perception issue are huge. You know, you're talking, uh, there's, there's still, and I think that that's something that in an election will still be used to, to, to beat um, the government parties with. And I, I think it will, if you look at the exit polls from the last election where it was health and housing, I think they'll probably be flipped and it will become housing and then health as, as your big issues. Yeah, Elaine, that's the, that's the thing uh, about housing as well that would strike me that, you know, if, and a lot of people are suggesting it, and it seems to have a certain amount of validity, we're talking about an election most likely in the autumn heading into the winter of 2024. Let's just for a moment suppose that. Even if the government come up with new initiatives, big announcements, etc. It's not going to be tangible on the ground by then in terms of greater accessibility for first-time buyers, affordability, all of that. So it would strike me they have a real, real uphill battle to convince people that they're going to handle this issue better going into the future, particularly, as Paul points out, for a decade, Fine Gael, that element of the coalition was in there and and uh, that's where things went wrong. So it's difficult to see how on housing the government are going to be able to make any political capital. Or, would you agree with that or am I missing something? Well, I think the government is now just relying on time and uh, having enough time ahead of the next general election to see the rollout of and the ramping up of uh, the delivery of housing. 
as you said, Mick, there won't be any new measures announced. I think around this time last year, uh, members of the cabinet were briefing out that Darrow O'Brien had until March, uh, essentially to announce any new measures that would be in any way effective ahead of a general election, because it takes so long uh, for housing related measures to actually make an impact on the ground for people to get keys in their hands to to front doors. Um, so I think the hope from the government side of things will be that there will be tens of thousands of new houses delivered. People and families will have moved into apartments, will have moved into social houses, will have got affordable homes ahead of the next general election and they'll be able to point to the figures uh, and will be saying that they delivered uh, these houses for people. It has to be said, though, on the flip side of things, for a long time now, uh, Sinn Féin have said and have admitted that if in government, it would take them two terms to tackle the housing crisis. So they're not coming up with any quick fix solutions either. Um, And Mary Lou MacDonald is saying that it would take her party, who have been to the fore on housing um, for a long time now, it would take her party a significant uh, amount of time to get this crisis under control. But certainly I think that's where Sinn Féin believe they have votes to win. Um, It was interesting that after the debacle with uh, Helen McEntee and that failed confidence or no confidence vote, which obviously the government uh, countered with a a motion of confidence, which they won, um, Mary Lou Macdonald's party quickly went back to the issue of housing and has been raising that in recent weeks before the doll broke for Christmas. I noticed, I noticed that, all right. The, the, uh, it, it was like you, you had that uh, lacuna and you had the riots and Helen McEntee and then once Sinn Féin had a chance to breathe, suddenly it was ba-boom, straight back on. Hammer, and correctly, in terms of their role, opposition politicians, opposition absolutely from their perspective, correct to do so and, and often making very valid points. But it was very obvious that let's get back to normal. It, it, it was nearly as if this is the ground we're most comfortable on. We have to get back there fast. And and, and they did so, as you said. It will be interesting because I think that will be the defining issue of an election if we had it. One other issue, Paul, that has um, come to the fore and I think it's very much in the latter part of this year and with a number of elections, not just here, but in places like the US, uh, the European elections, and here in particular, the local elections, whatever about a general election, is immigration going to be a factor in Irish elections this year in a way it has not been previously? And if so, how will it manifest itself? Yeah, I think it will, Mick. I think um, I think one of the things that that's interesting, um, if you look at the the playbook of of the right and the far right uh, across the world is that in the last number of years, it's never been about electoral gain first. It's always about changing the conversation, uh, modifying how things are talked about, um, <clears throat> introducing new new. Um, uh, new terminology to to public discourse, and then uh, chasing electoral gain, um, and you see that in I mean you saw that over a number of years of of uh, the Obama administration, uh, culminating in in the election of Donald Trump. A lot of that groundwork was being done online, uh, 
Um, here, how it's going to manifest itself is in uh, the way that it's it's happening now. If you think of you think of those blockades earlier this year, uh, the likes of Santry, the likes of East Wall, where facilities earmarked for the use for use by asylum seekers were were effectively um, held back from use by very 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 small numbers of people. And this is the thing that you that that I suppose you have to keep in, in mind is that the, the actual frontline actors on these things, there's very, very few of them, um, but they are able to modify and, and modulate the, the public discourse. I think one of the interesting things there is is how the political parties respond. Uh, you look at Fianna Fáil now, in the last week, uh, two Galway councillors felt very, very two Galway councillors and a councillor down in Cork felt very very comfortable straying from the established party line uh, their their utterances around you know the inn is full uh, that the people who take in uh, people who, who take in asylum seekers are, are worse than than English landlords that is a, a, a straying from the party line that would have been unthinkable uh, 12 months ago uh, this year has has really bedeviled the, the government in terms of immigration for a couple of reasons. One, huge numbers, um, and there there is this talk of of communication, and we have it again today. Leo Vragger saying that the the Gardaí were informed, um, guards kind of sticking by their guns. That that the guards on the ground weren't informed. It was it was an email that went over. That's in, just to let people. That's in relation to the fire in Galway, the the, the arson in Galway that was committed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that that communication. Uh, that that lack of communication that that people perceive. So these are the things that are, I suppose, driving a wedge and and, and causing issues there. But the big thing is that it's just pure space. And and Timmy Dooley was on was on the the hard shoulder, the, the Fianna Fáil senator the other day, and he said, "Look, normally, ideally, you'd send these people to to built up areas. You'd send send them where there are services. Nobody wants to be using uh, a hotel in the middle of nowhere in Connemara." But there is nowhere else. The, the, you know, we got to a point a couple of weeks ago where people arriving into the country seeking, seeking asylum were basically given sleeping bags and tents and, and, and kind of told, best of luck, come back and we'll see if we can get, uh, we can get you somewhere to sleep, somewhere permanent or, or somewhere with, with a roof. Um, so if that continues, and, and there's no sense that it won't, you know, you see that the changes that are being uh, that are going to be brought in in, ter- in terms of uh, housing for Ukrainians coming here f- uh, from next year. That's really just an attempt now to, to slow down the numbers of people coming here. And that's the only thing that will work or that will kind of take the issue off the agenda. But the fact that, you know, every facility is being used, every available facility is being used means that there are more of these controversies coming um, you know, there was a report yesterday from the Arklo Municipal District where people had seen workmen going into a former air uh, warehouse on the edge of town and immediately were ringing councillors. What do you know about this? Is this for asylum seekers? Um, and two of the councillors told, told the meeting, according to, to a report in, on, uh, in the Independent yesterday, that they, they felt threatened, um, that they had to go and, you know, ascertain from the council that, that it wasn't, that the facility wasn't being used for to house asylum seekers. But the fact that this is on such a hair trigger and that, and that it, you know, you might not see an electoral breakthrough for, for the far right parties here, but you will see them able to 
frame the debate a bit more than they would have been previously. Okay, and Elaine, no, my thoughts on this, and I'd just be interested in what you think, whether I, I'm the right track or not here. Immigration, as we know, has become a major issue globally uh, in terms of politics. However, it would strike me that, unlike, for instance, in the UK, where it's all about reducing the number of immigrants coming in, and I'm talking there about immigrants who are coming in from, who previously used to come in from the likes of Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, legal immigrants effectively coming there to work. They want to reduce the overall numbers there. A similar thing in other countries. As I understand it, the issue so far here has been confined to this thing about asylum seekers and refugees because, quite simply, we've had such a massive influx, largely but not exclusively, as a result of the war in Ukraine. But in that vein, I mean, in the first instance, there's, to me, there's nothing we can do about that because we have obligations. We've, we've humanitarian obligations, we've obligations within the EU. So it's not an issue about overall numbers coming here, despite the fact that we have nearly one in five people who weren't born here. It's exclusively to do, so far, with asylum seekers and refugees who, who are quite possibly, vast majority, in a highly vulnerable position. And it's a different character to the debate, in my mind, to that extent. Are... are, are Am I grasping at straws there? Yeah, and I think you're right, Mick, and I think maybe that comes down to certainly at least two strands. The first is that we currently are at full employment. We need people to come into this yeah. country with certain skills. Um, Paul has spoken at length about the housing crisis. You try and get a a, a plumber or an electrician or someone uh, to, to do anything around the house and you, you'll really struggle because really we don't have those type of skills or certainly the numbers that we require right now. And also we've been relying on uh, people to come into this country um, to support what is our thriving uh, multinational IT sector you know I'm, I'm thinking of the Docklands in Dublin where we have the Googles and Metas and and Facebooks um, that require um, talent from other countries to come here to support those jobs and that's why we have a booming economy um, and we've be, we had what some said was a giveaway budget in October um, and secondly as well I think it's the fact that we don't have an organised far-right uh, party uh, in this country. Um, yes, there are some members who've, who've stood for an election uh, previously, but we haven't had a far-right party as of yet in the Dáil, certainly. Now, it could be seen or could be said that there are a number of independents in the Dáil that have been stoking far-right sentiment. Um, but to date, that has been largely pushed aside um, and we had a, 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 the independents, a group of uh, rural independents recently tried to push for a vote on immigration and didn't get the numbers in the Dáil to actually um, push the, the green light to, to, to for that vote to go ahead. It'll be interesting to see how the local elections will play out um, and then how the general elections will play out. Will members of the right be able to organise um, and mobilise candidates around the country um, to get the numbers both at a local level and possibly in the Dáil the next time around? And I think then you could see a shift in debate, certainly at a political level. Okay, it would be interesting to see how that develops and whatever happens, you just hope that it doesn't start descending into the kind of stuff we've seen in other countries and, and, and just a, a real nasty 
element to things that are not based on any facts or anything but uh, stoking it up. Just another point to add, I think in recent weeks we have had a bit of a shift where um, you've seen for the first time uh, members of the established parties, and I'm specifically uh, talking about Fianna Fáil councillors here, who have come out with um, what would have been, I suppose to put it mildly, very controversial comments made uh, around you know, stating Ireland is full, the inn is full, and there are no place, places left um, in the country for people seeking refuge here. Now, that was strongly um, refuted by Micheál Martin, who said in the, in the case of Galway, the inn was not full. There was an empty inn there that someone decided to burn to the ground instead of making it available for those, as I said, coming to this country um, and needing refuge. I think one of the things for, for Ireland so thus far in terms of, of far-right political organisation is that the ju- it, it just hasn't really been presented with uh, an acceptable face. Uh, you know, the most kind of high-profile uh, right-wing parties thus far has been the National Party uh, and they were in the news over the summer uh, in a bizarre row about about gold um, gold bars um, I think one of the things that you know you have to be aware of is this this stuff being this stuff that, that, that punches down on, on vulnerable people that you know uh, that that is fiercely anti-immigrant uh, I think you just have to be wary, uh, and one of the things that, that we as the media always has to be wary, and the political apparatus here wary of, is that that this stuff comes dressed as something else. You know, um, at the minute it's fairly obvious what what a lot of these parties are about. They're very open about their 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 principles and about what their what their view on immigration is. For us, it, you know, I think one of the things is to, that you always have to be wary of is that it arrives dressed uh, as something else that it kind of speaks with a more polite voice and that we treat it as, as something that that is uh, more acceptable even though what's being said at its heart is, um, you know, is the same thing. Yeah, but just briefly on that, I mean, we've seen, for instance, in the UK, the Tories, and in the US, the Republican Party, parties that were, you know, what you might call bog-standard right, right of centre parties previously and they've got dragged large sections of both those parties have got dragged over towards the far right now I can't as at this point see any party here that would fall into that kind of uh, of a position and neither can I see any political entrepreneur or entity outside the established parties that could drag things that way whether that has an arresting effect on a drift or not? I just wonder. What do you think? I think I think the difference there is that in in the UK and, and the US, there's an imperative to keep your uh, your political party together in that way. Um, so if there's a lurch to the right, you keep things together because it's a two party system, and the the option is is losing. The fact that we have a lot of political parties uh, for the size of the country, the fact that they get to represent all ends of the political spectrum. I think that that you know probably caps the the ceiling of extremist parties in either way because I don't think Irish people generally um, do go you know on mass to one or the other extreme. I think most people in Ireland, if you actually sat down and examined their 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 place on the political spectrum, would probably land somewhere from 
you know, left to centre right. And I, I think that's where the majority are. But I think the fact that they're, you know, the fact that we have uh, proportional representation and there are a lot of political parties that people can join or support, I think that probably keeps us from uh, that kind of uh I'm not going to say doomsday scenario, but the, the the politics of both those countries has become more polarized, more more divisive, and I think luckily we we should be able to avoid that. I do think. Look, one of the things that that the government generally has to be better at is articulating its position. Um, Leo Varadkar released a very strong statement in, in the wake of Galway uh, on Sunday afternoon, where he took on some of the. The, what he said were were myths about Ireland's immigration policy um, that you know that the borders aren't open albeit uh, with with a border in the north but like you know kind of you know that people who come in are fingerprinted that they're photographed that they're checked for on Interpol and Europol watch lists and you know he that you know this was probably the first time that the government has really head on uh tried to tackle these talk these right wing or far right talking points. Um but they also have to be better at communicating what's happening in communities. Um that argument between the Gardaí and the uh, and the, the department on who notified or, or whether or not Gardaí on the ground were notified about what was happening in Connemara. You know, Leo Franker said yesterday at a briefing with journalists, there has to be a belt and braces approach to these things. So it's not just an email that it's an email and a letter and a phone call. It has to be more than like the, the fact that an email is, the, you know, you you type up your email, you send your email job done. You have to pick up the phone. You have to talk to people. Uh, there has to be people within the departments. And I understand that these these departments are incredibly busy, but there has to be people willing to pick up the phone to local representatives, to the local Garda sergeant and say, look, this is what's happening on the ground. You know, this is how we're going to support you. This is where people can go. I, I, where Near where I live, there's modular housing being built for Ukrainians and that's a different challenge. They have a lot more time uh, to, to do public consultation. But, you know, the, the local community has felt included all the way because there's local meetings, there's there's flyers gone in the door, here's what's happening, here's where you can visit to, to find out more, here's who you contact. And on that as well, I think communication, to pick up on Paul's point, not just with local communities, but with the, the general public as a whole. Because when you're being faced with the narrative of dangerous, unvetted males, um, that really, I can understand why people might be fearful when those type of descriptions are being put forward um, by those who don't want um, people to be accommodated in their local community or in any community. Um, but it, it goes back to the simple thing of our economy, if you want to, to get down to the brass tacks of it, we're in full employment Day after day, we have um, whether it's you know the nursing organisation saying they can't get enough nurses. We have a shortage of teachers. We can't get doctors. Uh, we can't get construction workers. And people who are arriving here, yes, they're fleeing oppression. Yes, they're fleeing war. But before they came here, they were doctors. They were teachers. They had skills. Uh, they were in employment. Um, and. I think if you shift it from saying that these are faceless, nameless, dangerous, unvetted males to these are people who we can uh, hopefully help assimilate into communities, who will work in communities and will essentially pay taxes uh, to create a better society, a better economy and a better future for Ireland. Um, 
then I think maybe you can certainly address that what many would describe as scaremongering from the far right. I couldn't agree more with that, Elaine, and, uh, you know, the, the, the message in that sense and that trope of unvetted males, I, like, that's that, that, that's basically offensive. You see, some people are so vulnerable coming in here, some of them and what have you. However, the other issue of communication in terms of that with communities. Now, the security point of view, absolutely, there's an issue there and the, 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 there seems to be shortcomings there in relation to the recent arson attack in Galway. However, there's also the case in terms of the, where the government are concerned, two elements to it. One, like they're literally scrambling everywhere to find a place, as we've seen by up to 200 people being forced to, who've arrived here being forced to sleep in the streets. The other element to it too, though, is as well, that if you give a lot of notice to people that um, there's going to be a, a accommodation that's, that's in there or is going to be fashioned there for um, asylum seekers... The mood is such in some places now that all that will do is basically mobilise not just people locally, but that small element of the far right who will absolutely exploit it online in the initial phase and subsequently, if they can at all, try and veil themselves within the community. So the communication is a double-edged sword in that respect. Yeah, and I, I suppose though there are elements and uh, people with certain views that you're never going to change no matter how much consultation goes on. But I suppose um, the more consultation, the more communication, the more interaction you have with communities, I think uh, the better chance you have of actually, you know, getting people involved, getting people on board and getting communities uh, to welcome people and, and to see them for, for who they are for for people, as I said, who have families, who are brothers, who are sisters, who are mothers, fathers, and people who can hopefully in the future uh, work in this in this country. Absolutely. And there's a long tradition of people who have arrived here as asylum seekers making huge contributions to the country over the last 20 years and 25 years possibly in particular. Paul, just for both of you to finish, I know you're going to absolutely hate this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, for the sake of this conversation, I'm saying... We're going to have a general election in the coming year. And I'm asking you, what elements are going to form the next government? Look, uh, <laughs> not to sound like uh, Michal Martin, because he gives this answer a lot. <laughs> but Ah, come on. Elections do <laughs> tend to take on their own uh, storyline. So if you think back to 2020, the, nobody saw uh, a controversy about uh, an, a commemoration for the RIC being a big thing. Uh, and then Mary Lou MacDonald wasn't uh, invited to a leaders debate and that became its own thing. Uh, so there were, look, there, the, all of these things come with caveats. I think, look, if you look at the, the polling and the, the polling's been, it's not been, uh, you know, the same uh, month on month, but it's been fairly consistent that what you're looking at most likely is, a, is some form of a Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil coalition. Now, right. one of the things that you have to look at is that Sinn Féin currently uh, is at 36 seats. Uh, that is a, a long way off a majority in this doll, which is 160 seats. It's a, it's a longer way off the, a majority in what the next doll is, which is 170 seats. 28% uh, as they were on the last poll, 29 in the previous 31 previous to that. So you're kind of in around the 30s. That doesn't get you anywhere near 85 seats. It, you know, On a good day, you might do 60, 61. 
So they're going to need coalition partners. I think when they look around between the Social Democrats, the Labour, uh, people for profit, any uh, sympathetic independents, you're probably you probably will have the numbers. You you might be able to get there on raw numbers alone. You won't have a, a stable coalition. Um, so I think that when the time comes, I think I think Fianna Fáil is likely to uh, decide the balance of power because it will probably you know it. it for all of the the talk that, uh, about nobody supporting Fianna Fáil anymore, one in five people, roughly, or you know, one in five, one in six people tells pollsters that they will vote for Fianna Fáil. So obviously, somebody is supporting them. Um, I think they'll have the balance of power, and and they'll probably get to choose between the the current coalition or or a coalition with Sinn Féin. And I think that's probably the most interesting thing about where where on the spectrum, uh, Fianna Fáil comes back uh, and what it's. TDs think at that stage because we know and, and we reported at the time in 2020 there were a number of TDs who wa who were willing uh, to speak to Sinn Féin uh, during the last uh, government formation talks but uh, you know it wasn't countenance. I think Michael Martin has said what what he thinks that, that Sinn Féin needs to do to, to be a viable coalition partner. I think if you get to a point where they're the only ones with the numbers then I think that that might soften a bit so I think that for me that's the the, the next coalition it's, it's either going to be Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil or, or some form of return for for this coalition. Elaine can I suggest a slightly different scenario to you let's for example say that roughly the current government uh, maybe throwing a few independents or sock them or whatever could come back uh, based around Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, yet Sinn Féin being by some distance still the biggest party. In that kind of situation, would Fianna Fáil in particular come under any pressure on the basis of a large vote for Sinn Féin to, notwithstanding the capacity to leave them out of government, to actually include them on the basis that they had such a big vote and and, and as as, it, as would be perceived, a vote for change following 13 years of uh, Fine Gael in government. Would that dynamic come into play? Because just briefly, as, as we know, prior to recent years, any time there was a coalition, it was Fianna Fáil were still the biggest party and the coalition consisted of Fine Gael and Labour and that was just the way it was, that, that, that straightforward dynamic. But would something different come into play if Sinn Féin had that surge that they're expected to have and represent this, whatever kind of way you want to put it, change? Would Fianna Fáil come under that kind of pressure? I think so, definitely. But um, I think the one person who's under the most pressure now is Mary Lou Macdonald because she is expected to return her party uh, to the next doll as the leading party by a significant majority and to form a government. Um, and as you know, Mick, from talking to politicians, they don't look at polls at all. They don't think about them. The only poll they think about is the national poll, if you believe them, which none of us do. Um, so I think the coalition will have been looking very closely at the, the most recent polls, the two most recent polls, which did show Sinn Féin sliding. Now, very by very very small numbers but still sliding slightly in the polls and I think the government will be looking in the new year to see if this continues if Sinn Féin perhaps slide down to 28 29 percent instead of you know they were kind of even close to the mid 30s at one point but certainly kind of in around 31 32 percent um and that might 
certainly readjust um, what people are expecting after the next election and might especially give Fine Gael pause for thought because um, I think while it could be possible based on the numbers and, and it depends certainly on turnout, who turns out, uh, what uh, age cohort turns out in a general election as to how uh, good or bad Sinn Féin will do. Um, but I think most people in Fine Gael have been, even over the past four years, thinking that they will be on the opposition benches and a lot of them have thought that they should have been in the opposition benches after 2020. Um, but if we do see that sl- slight slide and maybe a, a, even a slight increase for Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, um, would they have to re-examine that and think perhaps of doing, uh, as you said, a bit of a deal with um, perhaps the Sock Dems the next time round to cobble together another coalition. Um, so it's all to play for, I think. Um, and as Paul said, elections really, and the, the public don't really get actively involved with elections until the date is set and um, candidates are on the ground knocking on doors and putting flyers, uh, leaflets through letterboxes. Um, people don't really, unless you're a political nerd like the three of us, don't really think seriously about who their next Taoiseach, Tánaiste or government uh, is going to be until possibly the ballot card comes in through the post. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting year, there's no question about it. And uh, folks, if you want to follow it in terms of politics, I have to say I think the Irish Examiner coverage with Elaine, Elaine Lachlan, Paul Hosford, Kira Field and Tig McNally, in my opinion, my, my admittedly biased opinion, is first class. Uh, Elaine and Paul, thank you both very much for joining us today. Thank you both for your contributions to this podcast during the year. Always great to check in with you. And happy Christmas, Elaine and Paul. Thanks again. Thanks, Mick. Uh, as always, I want to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. Take it easy. Have a good break. Take a run at it again in the new year. All the best. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.